Dotnet Rocks episode 602 with guest Steve Evans. Recorded live Monday, June 28th, 2010. This episode is brought to you by Talaric and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now here's Carl and Richard. And we're live with the .NET Rocks live weekend. It's, even though it's Monday, it's still the weekend for us, and I've got Steve Evans on the line. Morning, Steve. How's it going? Pretty hey, good. Steve. Up bright and early in Northern California? Uh, 8 a.m., which isn't that early normally, except I just got back from code camp last night. Uh, which code so, camp were you at? San Diego. Uh, SoCal code camp. Or, uh, yeah. Uh, what do we call it? Something rocks. Yeah, the, the rock uh, and roll code camp. Right, rock and roll code camp. I wanted to call it the .NET Rocks code camp, but I knew that wasn't uh, right. We have, we well, that's what's going it. on right now, yeah, actually. that's what we're doing right here. <laughs> now, and you can't declare jet lag because that's about a two-hour flight you're talking about. Uh, uh, well, I, I drive. The town I live in, the airport, is, it's one of those airports that's, that has one gate. Oh. And uh, You drove uh, from San Diego in. back up to Mountain View? Uh, no, I live in San Luis Obispo. Oh, San Luis. I don't live in Mountain View. Oh, okay. So not quite Which, that far enough. It's still a good six hours of driving. Uh, it's about, well, so the key is you have to go through LA. So if you don't hit traffic, it's five hours. Right. If you hit LA at the wrong time, it can be up to, you know, 10 or 12. Right. So, I would have called that an issue more than a key, but <laughs> <laughs> I used to live there, you know, and I lived in Southern California for, uh, in the, the San Bernardino area, and I moved there for a job. And I lived there for about two weeks before I realized there were mountains you know, because of the smog. So nice. one day yeah. I came out to get the mail, like, Jesus Christ, look at that! <laughs> oh, my God! I don't think it was fog. I believe they call that smog, Carl. Yeah, yeah. smog is what I said. It probably sounded like fog because oh, of our high-fidelity yeah. uh, broadcasting situation here. So, but, yeah, yeah. it only took us about five and a half. It was a good, you know, it was a good trip. And I carpooled with a friend of mine from the from the area. So that helped a lot. Yeah. Well, we talked to you on .NET Rocks a while ago and uh, on DNR TV also. Your forte seems to be bridging that gap between development and IT. And specifically, since you are a developer, you can talk to developers about the things that they need to know in the IT realm that they wouldn't necessarily be thinking about. What are you thinking yep. about these days? Um, well, like, you know, we just did that uh, episode on cloud computing. So I've been doing this CodeCamp user group session about cloud computing. And, and really, it comes down to a comparison of, um, you know, traditional computing, physical servers or, or virtual servers um, versus Amazon, Google, or Azure. Um, and that's always been a really interesting conversation because, the way I do the talk, it's very open, and it's a lot, much more of a conversation. And uh, so I just did the talk yesterday, and I thought it was interesting because the last few times I've done it, the conversation has been much more about, okay, how, how would I implement, you know, how would I do the cloud? As opposed to when I started doing this talk a year ago, year and a half ago, the questions was, were much more along the lines of, is this really a feasible option? Or, you know, a lot of concerns around security, or reliability. So I think it's interesting that people seem to be moving from should I do this to how can I do this? Yeah. Um, That's a positive progression. Definitely. Uh, well, if you're a cloud vendor, it's a positive progression. <laughs> <laughs> Since we had that talk, we haven't started investigating Amazon S3. And, uh, you know, it didn't take me long to figure out how to get files up to Amazon S3, but it's not as simple as as you think. It's not like you just mount a drive and you can copy files, although there are tools out there, I understand, to help you do that. Um, you need to... Yeah. There, there are the, at the fundamental level, it's done with soap and uh, a dime attachments. And, you know, that can be daunting if you don't have some tools, but fortunately there are tools, and Amazon has a nice little... Uh, uh, .NET toolkit to help you get going with that, and and I found it to be quite easy once once I figured out yeah. a few key things. Yeah, there's a um, they have libraries for a lot of different languages, um, 
to help you interact with their various services, uh, especially S3. So are you thinking about just putting the shows up there? We're um, thinking about using it for, first of all, the very first thing we need to do is is move our download server somewhere else, somewhere in the cloud. So yeah, so the, so the files need to be hosted in the cloud, first of all. That's the very first thing. Uh-huh. Secondly, to move the databases and the web servers there uh, is is key. But the first thing okay. I think is is just to move the files there. We've we've sort of observed a four terabyte per month cap, or about a forty a steady forty megabit cap on our download stream. We're pushing out forty uh-huh. megabits at pretty much a steady clip, and it doesn't really trail off from that too much. And it really doesn't. I mean, it spikes over it, but but uh, we, we're seeing that as sort of a, a built-in bottleneck, and we don't know where the bottleneck is. But uh, you know, certainly we've we're looking at our logs, and we're finding that some overseas customers or some overseas IP addresses will start a download and won't get very much, very many bytes, and then just stop downloading. Yeah. They- and there's certainly a belief that we need to uh, to start hosting stuff closer to uh, some of the listeners. And we need a server in Western Europe and uh, possibly one in Asia just because there's lots of listeners there. And, and uh, you know, downloading from North America is tough. Right. So you guys are looking at using CloudFront instead of S3? We're... So CloudFront's their CDN. Um, so in S3, you have buckets. And really, buckets is just their fancy name for a folder. Right. And you can specify this bucket I want to push out to your guys, you know, to Amazon CDN. And so you can push it out to Eastern Asia, uh, Western Europe, um, and other locations uh, to get that data closer to your users. Right. Yeah, we, um, we, we're starting in S3, getting, getting our files in buckets. Yep. Yep. Um, the... The really nice thing about Amazon CDN and Azure CDN is, is very similar is there's no contract you have to sign. Whereas right. all the other CDNs, they want you to, you know, agree to work with them for the next year or the next, you know, however many number of months. Right. Whereas with Amazon CDN, you can just try it out and then decide not to use it or, and the pricing is really reasonable for a CDN. Yeah, that's the thing. Actually, I think Amazon did a good job with their price calculator where it's pretty straightforward to figure out how all these things right. work. But it is it is interesting to think about your apps in that sort of distributed way. It's not part of this is new features, but the other side of this is what is it costing us to host where we already are? You know, I think Carl and I both suffer from a little of the well. How would you say this? Control freak? Is that? Yeah, what I think maybe that's maybe it. Maybe that's it. So you know, we, we, we like to know what's going on and. And we prefer to fix the colo that, model, right? I don't think that's a clinical term for yeah. your disease. But. <laughs> yeah, the colo model was something that we thought about doing for a while, you know, setting up some servers around the world and sort of pushing files out to them. And then Richard, it was Richard actually that convinced me the, to take another hard look at, uh, at uh, the cloud. And we looked at Azure and the, the um, I don't know, uh, well, we looked at both of them, and you know, for I'm not going to say why exactly, but we we thought S3 because it's been you know around longer, and you know people have been using it for the long a longer time, and they're using it, they're using it for their own stuff. Their CDN is very um, isn't you know new as new, so we're going with right. them. We're, we're at least starting there, and uh, the 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 argument was before they didn't have good reporting. And we need reporting at the file level, not the bucket level. Right. And that just doesn't exist. So it it does exist. Actually, there's a company called S3 Stat that okay. that uh, does this. And for five bucks a month, they'll essentially you, you give them your Amazon secret passwords and whatever, and they they go out and they take a look at your buckets and they do reports on them. They they will actually access your account and create log directories and put the uh, make sure to turn on logging and read those logs and process them and turn them into reports for you. And the reports, the cool. sample reports they have online are really, really decent. And like I said, they're five bucks a month, so you can't go wrong there. I was going to say, you think you can find the financing for that? Yeah, we we might have to go to our sponsors and hit them up. It's going to be a hard, dis- <laughs> a hard discussion. <laughs> So you made a mistake by saying that it's $5 a month on the air. 
you should have just been like, yeah, you know, go back to your sponsors and be, we really want to do this great reporting for you guys, but we need you to pony up for it. Yeah, unfortunately, lying it's to our sponsors not really is not something that we uh, relish. Yeah, it's an interesting challenge. <laughs> so what are so, you guys doing with the, with the, on the cloud side of things? I mean, you're always talking about how we should be using it, but uh, what sort of projects are you doing? Yeah, that's that's the question I don't want people to ask. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I have a lot of clients that talk about going to the cloud, but honestly, there's not that many. There's not that many that do. Um, I think a lot of customers. I, I was just talking to um, my friend I drove down with yesterday, and he was he does um, uh, commu- intelligent community stuff, and he was interested in hosting um, intelligent community inside of Azure. And was kind of looking at what would the pricing cost, et cetera. And he he was having a really hard time figuring out the pricing model. And earlier you mentioned, you know, the Amazon pricing. You, you thought they, Amazon did a good good job with their pricing calculator. Yeah. Um, I I think in some ways it's there, there's two sides of that. On the one side, I think the Amazon pricing is really nice because everything gets broken down, um, and if you can. You know, you can leverage that to get the best best bang for your buck. Sure. On the other hand, I think a lot of business owners, they don't want to see this, well, we're not really exactly sure what's going to cost this month, and we got to figure out the bandwidth, um, you know, how much bandwidth we're going to use, et cetera. I think a lot of business owners would like to see, here's this tier of, of a service we're going to provide. So, you know, up to four instances and up to... Uh, this much storage and up to this much um, uh, uh, bandwidth, and you know you're going to pay X per month. And I think some business owners would like to see more of those steps, more of a flat to, rate you're model. Get this bill. Well, yeah, more of a package, um, kind of like the traditional hosting companies do. Now, maybe that's just maybe that's not a better model. But I think it would it would help some people kind of make the transitions in their mind from what they're how they're currently paying for IT infrastructure, or at least for you know hosting costs. Biggest issue I saw uh, around the calculator is I'm betting most people couldn't answer the questions. You know, th- there was a uh, especially was, the bandwidth question. Yeah, how many bytes? Um, how many connections up? How many connections down? Like there was a lot of detailed information. I was kind of yeah. shocked that I, we pretty much had every one of those numbers at our fingertips, but that's because we're already remotely hosting in a different form uh, our files. So, you know, I think there's a big point here that you can't you can't even get started until you have some pretty detailed stats about how your app works. If, you, if everything was just yeah. living inside of your rack, you have no idea. And and if you think about okay, I, let's say I'm a new company. And I'm I'm building some service, and I'm thinking about putting it up on Amazon or Azure. If it's a new service, I have no idea how much bandwidth I'm using. No. And I think most people would have a really hard time even guessing um, how much each user, you know, for if I have ten thousand users, it's going to use this much bandwidth. I think most people would come up with a number, and, it, and the best part about that number is there's no way it would be that number. Right. Um. Um. So I think it makes a lot of people scared. You know. So. A new company is looking at, okay, I know it will cost this much for instances. I know it will cost this much for storage. And, and with some work, they could probably figure out those numbers fairly easily. But then there's this bandwidth number that's, that can you know be kind of scary to them. Sure. Um, and, I, and I think everybody, and including us, is in, it has this fear of one day you're, you're – it's the cell phone bill syndrome. One day right. you <laughs> get a bill that's five times what you expected. Exactly. We're yeah. we're having this problem um, with uh, the the provider that is prov- the is the ISP. I guess what will you call them a CDN? The 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 CDN that's providing this mobile streaming. We um, talked about pricing early on, uh, and then made plans to go ahead with the live weekend. And um, but when it came time to actually the day before we got the the pricing contract, and it was like. 10 times what we thought it would be. We thought it was going to be based on usage and it's not. It's based on uh, um, provisioning. Provisioning per event per day. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's way overkill for what we need. And we got stuck with a huge bill and there was yeah. no, no getting out of it. Right. It's, it and it's, the th- you know, you uh, talk about these package pricing models. This is the battle, right? Is that 
You know, package price may be steady, but you, you know, you may be grossly overpaying depending on what actually happens during your event. It's a, this is an interesting problem. And I don't know if package pricing is the answer. Yeah. I, I do think that, uh, especially um, if you go to Azure.com right now, I think most people, especially thinking of business owners that are just thinking about doing something, I think most people are going to be a little overwhelmed with, with what is it I'm going to end up paying. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's especially true with Azure because it's your traditional Microsoft licensing model where here's the published price and, you know, no one's going to end up paying that actual price because if you're a BizSpark customer, you pay a different price. and yeah. SDN customers pay a different price, you know, et cetera. So, but I think Amazon suffers from the same thing where, you know, so an instance costs X per hour, unless you decide to do the one year reserved or the three years reserved where you pay a chunk of money and then you pay a different price per hour. Um, and then they have the spot pricing where you basically bid on instances. So you can say, you know, so a small instance is traditionally um, eight and a half cents an hour. So you could say, I want to bid on, I want to bid four cents an hour. And then as demand goes up and down in the Amazon web services, they will, they will give you instances at your bid price, um, for that period of time. But then if your bid falls below what, what other bids they could be getting at that point in time, they'll kick you off and put someone else on. Wow. So th- not well, exactly so a good design for your, critical services. Yeah. It's, that's yeah. A- I mean, if you're just need instances that, to crunch some data non-real time, I mean, that's great because then you can bid a couple cents an hour and get the work done. Yeah. If they basically they've got hardware, if they've got hardware lying around with nothing to do, they'll give it to you for a discount just to keep it busy. Exactly. It's kind of like um, the airlines, you know, the closer you get to it with those, you know, Priceline and, and, you know, those other services will let you bid at the last minute. Right. You know, at the end of the day, it's better just to put people in the seats than to, fly with an empty plane yeah it's that's very funny and this whole idea that you, you know, i almost suddenly had i had this sudden rush that a futures market for computing power really really <laughs> you know we know that it's a, as a as a world event like uh, like a world cup comes up computing power is going to get more expensive so let's lock in contracts for cheap processing early and then we can sell them to people who need them later on <laughs> that's really twisted is that where you know suddenly compute you know we always talk about about utility computing like water. Now we're talking about like frozen orange juice. <laughs> the um, the other thing I'm seeing with, with the developers I'm talking to about the cloud is they're not looking at cloud computing as a way to have this um, tremendous up and down scalability, that flexibility. Right. They're just looking at, we're just going to move what we got up into the cloud. Really? Um, yeah, I mean, so it's more of a, Let's just remove the headache of owning hardware away as opposed to we're going to re-architect our app so, you know, we can, we don't have these, these pressure points that we currently do. So we can go from two instances on our web tier to 200 without any, you know, effect on the application. So kind of makes sense if, if you already have an app and you're already going down that road and, you know, there's that learning curve of, of building an EC2 instance so you can just bring it online and, and it starts, you know, you start adding processing power. Um, you know, I see the allure of just ignoring that set of the problem, considering 99% of the time it probably doesn't matter. Right. What's interesting you're saying, you know, just moving everything across is all the case studies I've seen going out there, and we've even done shows around this, talk about uh, cloud computing as sort of the surge computing option. We're going to do this big promotion for six weeks, and why would you stand up servers for that when you can just you know, buy the, the six weeks you need and then let it go? Yeah, there's. Um, I think Azure especially right now has a lot of those. I, I think in my presentation I do, I have this one slide that compares um, kind of infrastructure as a service and platform as a service and like who's using what. And in the beginning days of Amazon Web Services, we saw um, mostly web startups using it. Yeah. And then as it matured, we started to see small businesses, and now we're seeing big enterprise um, using Amazon Web Services, which is kind of surprising because a few years ago, we never would have thought that 
Fortune 500 companies would ever use Amazon Web Services. Yeah, I'm very surprised by that. They already own the infrastructure. They could be their own clouds. Um, so until recently, Target.com ran out of Amazon Web Services. No kidding. I did not know that. Yep. So the only reason they moved out of Amazon, well, I don't know if it's the only reason, but the big reason they moved out of Amazon Web Services is that when, when you stop and think about it, Target and Amazon are direct competitors to each other. Right. You know, Amazon is one of Target's biggest, uh, I was almost said customers, but competitors. Yeah. And so there was a corporate mandate to get out of, you know, stop using Amazon services. Um, so I, we, we see big business using um, Amazon Web Services now. And I think we'll eventually see the same thing on, on the platforms, Google App Engine and, and Azure specifically. Whereas right now it's web startups, you know, new applications being built in Azure. And a few years down the road, if, you know, they execute well, I think we'll start to see larger and larger businesses using um, Azure. Now, the exception now is you'll see big business using Azure for those six-week promotional um, opportunities. But I think in the long term, I think we'll see Azure being used by big business, um, you know, for long-term applications. Yeah, and I find that fascinating, really. You know, if you can, the the real question mark here is, can't a large enough organization run their own infrastructure cheaper than what the cloud is running it for. Maybe what we're seeing is an anomaly right now, that they're essentially offering big enough discounts to big corporations to get them into the cloud, to legitimize the cloud. I mean, I'm, not that I want to be a conspiracy theorist, but you know, I just <laughs> got to think, the moment you can justify owning a container load of servers because that's the scale of your business, why would you let someone else own that for you? I'm not a finance major, but I mean, the first thing that pops to mind is from a capitalization standpoint, maybe I don't want to fork out the few hundred grand a container is going to cost me. You know, so instead of forking that cash out, I spread it out across the next rest of the year. Yeah, there's um, a difference between capitalization costs and operating costs, right? So the theory here yeah. is that I take a capitalization expense to reduce operating costs. And is that really true? Right. And it, this is where you got to work the math very closely. That uh, you know, right? And then again, and then you take on all that headache. Well, and it, that's the thing is, aren't you sitting on the skill set at that scale? You should have people capable of this. Maybe you do today. Maybe in ten years you decide that you don't need as much of that skill set. Hmm. I, I I don't know. Um, I, I think you can make arguments in either direction. I think um, I have, but <laughs> <laughs> I do think it's funny that that you and I are sitting here discussing. Um, you know, financing. Yes. Um, maybe but, not our expertise. I'm just saying. But that's also what we're down to, right? Is that this is the problem now. There's no question that the technology works, right? That's done. There's right. no question about the, you know, we've dealt with security issues. We've dealt with deployment issues. We've got all that sort of stuff worked out. Now we're really getting down to the brass tacks of this. Is this the most cost-effective way to operate the IT infrastructure of a business? And I think that answer to that question can change from month to month. I mean, depending on, uh, you know, we were looking at a, a CDN solution um, last year that turned out to, it looked like it was going to be the answer to our prayers. It was like a dream come true in terms of pricing. And then, thank God, we didn't lock into it and move all our files over because their pricing changed on based on uh, not just the number of what was it? Not just the number of downloads, but the amount of disk space used. Not just the amount of bandwidth used, but the amount of disk space used. Right. Yeah. And they had them in silos that were that combined disk usage and bandwidth usage. And if you needed less bandwidth and more space, you had to move up to a package that included more space. You couldn't just add more space to your silo. And the net result of that would have cost us in literally a thousand times more than what we had originally planned a thousand times like from $150 to $15,000 yeah that's a good chunk of change ouch yeah. this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik JustCode 
If you're like me, you're probably using some productivity add-on in Visual Studio to check, refactor, and test your code. But how'd you like to get a complete list of your solution's errors on the fly as you type, and not just for the opened files? The new kit on the block, Just Code, does just that for all supported .NET languages as well as JavaScript. It's like having a compiler running all the time, only that Just Code is faster and requires less CPU time. One area where Just Code is definitely better is performance. The tool provides the fastest code analysis and better performance without slowing down Visual Studio. Another reason to try it is JavaScript support. It'll help you read, navigate, and refactor your JavaScript code better than you've ever imagined. Learn more about the features Just Code offers and download a trial at Telerik.com slash Just Code. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. I think the point you were just making about, um, you know, you, you, your pricing, the pricing model changed on you. I think that's a big concern with, with cloud computing right now is that lock-in. Yeah. Um, so if I decide to write an application for Azure, there's only one person in the world right now that can run that application. Yeah. Um, and so let's say Microsoft decides to change their pricing, or let's just say they start to have some serious technical problems. Um, you know, I'm, I'm now married to the Azure service. And yeah, I can port my application, you know, it, especially if you write an ASP.NET app for Azure, you could, you can port it over to a traditional, you know, just Windows server box with IIS without a ton of difficulty. But again, it's, it is that work. And then how do you get your data out of Azure? Um, you know, in a, a, you know, in a, Depending on your application, that might be quite difficult. It's a good question. I think what a lot of people are hoping to see, or at least I'm, I'm really hoping to see, is these platforms being available outside of one company. So I'm really looking forward to a platform that there's multiple hosting companies that can run. Or if I'm a Fortune 500 company and I, I can afford a few containers spread around the world, I can, I can run that cloud inside my own data center. And it's the same one that running out in a public cloud, and so then I can make decisions on, do I want to run this internally or externally? How about just using a platform that's portable? Like, why why does Azure have to be its own, you know, Azure SQL flavor? Why can't we just have a virtual machine like we can with Amazon? That makes Amazon, like, a whole much more uh, attractive to me because it's a machine. I can get in there and I can set up SQL Server and 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 use it. And if anything happens to it, I can move it away. Yeah, but then you take on, yeah, but the, the problem there is there there are some advantages to that, which is why a lot of people like Amazon. But then, you know, when I talk to a lot of developers, they don't want to do that hands-on stuff, and they don't want to worry about it, and they want that all abstracted away from them. Abstraction is nice, but so is compatibility. I mean, we were just talking about the lock-in effect being the real if you know, if it's all about finance, financing, which is what you and Richard are seeming to agree on here, then not being locked in and being able to move if there are technical difficulties seems to probably be my number one concern. Yeah, I think there's a clear case for for Microsoft. I mean, I, there's a merit to the Azure model of not having to own the OS, not having to own the patch, all of those sorts of things. But the lock-in's got to be a barrier to adoption. So I got to think, my, you know, Microsoft's not stupid. They're going to address this in some way. We have a caller on the line. Go ahead. You're on the air. Hey, this is Justin Kudo. I'm Steve's buddy that rode up to Code Camp with him over the weekend, and we were talking about the cloud computing stuff and talking about the pricing model. Yeah. I, um, one of the things that I think that could be done, because I was thinking about this problem and trying to figure out, like, how, as a small business owner, can I, like, recommend this to my clients? And what we do is um, we do community development. And a lot of times when we're bringing these communities online, um, we don't exactly know what their stats are going to be and what their costs are going to be. So what, what I think would be great is if they had some plans that said, okay, um, this, you, you, you're going to pay up to this much per month. That way, I can, you know, that way I can have hard numbers to tell the client. And then what we could do is we could say that, you know, and then we can start monitoring the numbers and then as we start approaching, you know, that line, get warnings or notifications, or once we level out and know what our pricing is, then say, okay, now we can go on to the, you know, pay-per-usage model because it would be more cost-effective. 
But, uh, you know, I think most of my clients would rather pay a little bit more to know that they're not going to have some crazy numbers or any kind of warning or whatever. It's kind of a, it's hard to sell, I guess. Well, it, it, I think it comes down to the infrastructure, the, the way it works, right? Um, uh, a cloud provider has got costs and, you know, I'm, it, it's a little less of a gamble with a Microsoft or an Amazon because they, you know, they can, they have, they can absorb costs when, and spikes when in ebbs and flows. But, you know, with some of these smaller guys, they, they have these infrastructures that they have to support and all of a sudden, they're oversubscribed or they have a technical issue or, or their downstream bandwidth providers are charging them more and they have to raise their prices. Otherwise, they're off the air. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, so it just sort of comes with the territory. I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm, this was a sort of small potatoes CDN that we were looking at. Um, relatively speaking, it was a newcomer. But, and they're, but they're, you know, they're, they look like they want to compete head-to-head with Akamai. But um, and and I and I think that may be some of the the problem there. Just pricing just changed overnight. But I don't expect that so much to happen with Amazon and Azure. But I think the 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 biggest problem, as I said before, is the lock in problem. If we want to move away, you know, we can't. And maybe this is one way that Microsoft is sort of ensuring that they they have their customer base is to keep them locked in. I think one of the um, one of the points this brings up is is if you're doing thinking about doing something with cloud computing, um, you're going to want to look for someone who's you're not going to want to go with some small company. I mean, reputation is everything. A small company can decide that they got to change their pricing model real quick to to keep the doors open, and they don't really have much in the way of reputation to lose. Amazon or um, Azure. They can't decide, well, we're just going to change our pricing model right now and, and make everyone upset with them because the, everything that matters right now is reputation. Right. People go with Azure, Amazon, Google App Engine because they have the reputation that they're going to provide a reliable, consistent service. With smaller companies, you're not necessarily going to get that. And, you're not, and that's not even getting into, are they still going to be here in 12 months? Right. Yeah, well, therein lies the real issue that, that uh, there's never going to be small cloud providers. They're always going to be big, but at least there's going to be a few. But I think they're, you know, when it comes to Azure, the dev model, you know, the reality is you can build an Azure app on your workstation, compile it, and run it. So there is absolutely no technical reason that I couldn't have that running in a machine in my data center. You know, that piece, heck, I could just do it with my dev machine if I had to. But it seems like a logical piece of the puzzle that's missing right now. Unless there's a license that's preventing you from doing that. Well, and at this point, there is a license that's preventing me from doing that. But from a technical perspective, there's no reason there couldn't be a an Azure server for Windows that would allow us that, that intermediary state. What I would just prefer is that it would be a standard flavor of SQL so I could just move my... SQL files in my databases from my data center, which is, look, I mean, you're writing a new application, use the cloud, that's one thing, but migrating to the cloud is an entirely different thing. Yeah, and, and maybe we're talking about two different things here, because yeah. I do think the SQL Azure solution, the, there's been some pretty good examples here of taking a SQL database and moving it to Azure and even moving it back. Yeah. It's the application model of Azure that's the yeah. pain in the butt. Right. Because it is lock-in. You can only run it on their servers, yes. and that's frightening. And I want I want an option to run it in my data center. Agreed. And, and I, Microsoft's got to do this. Like, it's just apparent that this it, is a whole. If I was in charge of Azure, like if I was in charge of the Azure roadmap, which, you know, I kind of am, but not, not completely. <laughs> the, um, I mean, the next version of Windows Server would have one of the roles would be Azure. An Azure you know, service. I could choose to make yeah. it a file server, a domain controller, or an Azure server. Yeah, I, I um, totally agree. I don't know if the motivation should be to get to allow customers to run it for themselves. I think the really more interesting thing is let's let the let's let some other hosting providers run Azure. And so then I can decide as a customer, I can decide if I want to let Microsoft run Azure for me or I want to let some other hosting provider with reputation host it for me. And then if if I become unhappy with the vendor I choose, I can move it to someone else. 
Right. Um, I think I think the hosted exchange model is exactly what Azure needs. Yeah. I, where I can run Exchange myself, I can have Microsoft run Exchange, or I can let some third party run Exchange for me. And and there's even hybrids of that, right? There are hybrid implementations right. of that. I can have my uh, ISP run at my Edge server, but I still run the mailboxes. So, you know, that, you're, I agree, it is, uh, I think, one of the best examples of uh, the the cloud, personal server, internal server, external server, ISP model. It's got so many choices to the point where I think it's almost confusing. There's too many choices. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. I, I don't I don't suffer usually from the paradox of choice. I like those options that we can have some flexibility there and, and be able to tolerate what do you, what does it take to scale? You know, if we suddenly get bigger, I know there's a company out there that's willing to provision me an exchange server in an hour and get traffic handled over there. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, let's say I'm a healthcare company and I want to use Azure. You know, they'll, hopefully there'll be some vendor out there that, that specializes in HIPAA related clients. Right. You know, and they, they'll help you walk through all the HIPAA requirements. Or maybe I'm a nonprofit and there'll be some company that there's a nonprofit Azure out there that works with nonprofits to help them, you know, get going in an affordable manner or whatever the case may be. Um, and so Microsoft can kind of be the run of the mill kind of standard. Here's the standard service. And then you can have these specialty services, um, you know, that compete with them, which is really what you see with hosted exchange right now is Microsoft provides it and then other people provide it. Yeah, and, and the other angle on this is this idea of disaster recovery that, hey, I want to keep a server in the cloud in sync with my production server at home so that if it goes down, we could switch over to that. So using cloud as DR options, I think, is another thing that, that just hasn't been exploited substantially other than data backup. I think doing that uh, model like where I could run Azure in my own data center would help me with my problem also because then I can start monitoring. I can launch a community for a client in our data center and then see how they run. And then as they outgrow the capacity of our data center, then we can move them to uh, Microsoft Azure. And uh, from the uh, the chat room, J- I don't know how to say this, J-R-Z-Y-S-H-R. Thanks for making a pronunciable uh, username there. Dude needs to buy a vowel. Rachel Appel calls the local cloud dev environment the fog. I think that's pretty good. You know, the first time <laughs> we, we heard the uh, about Azure at PDC, low those couple years ago, uh, and you know they were talking about the cloud, and then they used the term the cloud on your desktop. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> You're carrying this metaphor a little too far. I think that's another good point, though, about, you know, we just saw Azure uh, 18 months ago. It's only been in production for five months. Yeah. And I think we got to be careful not to say, well, Amazon does this better, does this better, does this better, and say, see, Azure's never going to succeed. Azure's been around for five months. And and even on top of that, Azure plays the 80-20 rule. They are... You know, they provide 80% of you want for 20% of the effort. Um, and if you don't fit, if that other 20% is something you need, then Azure is not a good fit for you. Yeah. You know, they're not trying to be everything to everyone. Not at this whereas point. Whereas Amazon is trying to be everything to everyone. Well, I think, and I, I think I said this earlier in, uh, in the live weekend that the big difference between Amazon and Azure is Amazon, you know, is running on their framework. That's what it was there for. Then they decided to start selling it to others. Microsoft is still at the first stages of migrating their apps to Azure. I expect, just like every other Microsoft technology, when Microsoft starts using it internally, it gets dramatically better. And I suspect that that is going on right now, is as the big apps inside of Microsoft are starting to push onto Azure, it's internal Microsoft people that are kicking the Azure people to improve their product. Yeah. Um, I've heard there's some small Microsoft properties getting moved over there, but I've never heard any details but it'd be really nice to hear that Microsoft.com is running in Azure, or uh, even if it's something like IIS.net or ASP.net is running inside of Azure. Um, just anything that that they've moved over there or, or started something new would be really nice to to see. Mm-hmm. Maybe it'll be the Windows Phone marketplace, but whatever it is, they need to put something in there. Well, and that's what uh, what Ray Ozzy told us at PDC, right? That. 
we've got all this duplicate infrastructure for all these big websites, and that's stupid. We should have them all running in, in a common set of cloud servers so that we can scale them on demand. Yeah. Uh, Google App Engine is actually the same thing. It's, it's Google's infrastructure and just being presented to, to external users to use. Now, Google themselves has additional services on top of what Google App Engine provides. So Google App Engine is just a little subset of the entire Google infrastructure service, you know, available internally. Right. But um, my understanding is it's pretty much the exact same thing they're running. It's just they just provide a subset for external use. Um, speaking of Microsoft needing to use their own technologies, um, since we got Justin on the line, I know one of his big concerns is is what's going on with Silverlight. Um, so I don't know if you guys want to talk about, you know, what do you guys think the future of Silverlight is? Well, the future of Silverlight. How much time do we have? 15 minutes. Really, 10. <laughs> 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Future of Silverlight. Go. <laughs> Discuss. <laughs> Discuss. Wow. Um, you know, my perception of this has changed. I literally have to say in the last, um, in the last month, Ever since we got back off the road trip, I really? think my perception of the future of Silverlight has changed, and it's because of all the talk about Windows Phone. And you know, we talked about Windows Phone Seven on the road trip and got very excited about it and everything. And then um, I'm just, you know, when we talked to Rob earlier yesterday, Rob Howard, yeah, Rob Howard yesterday, or was it the day before yesterday? I can't remember. It was yesterday. You sure? No. It was the day before yesterday. It okay. was Saturday. We, uh, you know, he was he was basically saying something that is irrefutable, which is, as an application developer, I want to push out my application to as many people as I possibly can. I do not want technology to be a barrier for me. And I thought about that in going back to the browser wars. The reason that VB Script did not win in the browser over JavaScript is because Netscape didn't support it. That is the, that's the reason. That's what it came down to. That's what it came down to. So when one technology is not supported by a major hardware vendor, or in this case, a software browser, you know, a platform, you'd call it, you've got a problem. Micro, you know, Steve Jobs saying there will be no flash on the iPhone is a perfect example. Um, so now I'm thinking, well... If there's no Silverlight on the iPhone, and I thought, you know, for a while, well, who cares? You know, it's Silverlight. It's awesome. And now there's no, you know, no flash on the iPhone, and there's Silverlight only on Windows Phone 7. You know, what does that say for Silverlight? And, you know, Silverlight, I used to think, was going to be the end-all, be-all because it was supported on the Mac and it was supported in the browser, but the thing that it isn't supported on its phones, and if and I'm and I'm and the reason I think this is because we're doing a version of our publisher, right? Our our publisher that we use to publish our shows, and I want to be able to do that on my phone. I can currently do it because it's an ASP.NET application. I have actually sat in a bar in Sweden and added a show to the database just using not even a mobile website, just using the regular ASP.NET website that I built with web forms, you know, and added a show and added descriptions and, and guests and all that kind of stuff and done that from my phone. I would not be able to do that if that was a Silverlight application. So I, I think one of Justin's points is with HTML5 coming out, you know, what, what does Silverlight give us? Um, on yeah, top that's of the real question. Well, and, this, and that was Rob Howard's point: is that he's he doesn't want he wants uh, write once, run anywhere, and he right. thinks that HTML five is the best bet for that. And I'm tending to agree with him. Yeah, I don't know that I believe because I think uh, you know HTML five is in the in the dreamy stage of not shipping and everything is perfect. Well, Silverlight is even dreamier. Well, the um, there's no there's I mean you are really fooling yourself if you think Silverlight's going to be a platform on phones. Yeah, the only and therein lies the real issue is that Silverlight exists. We know it'll run on multiple platforms. The question is, can they get it to the platforms that matter? And the iPhones drawn the a line in the sand no. and said no. Yeah, right? the answer is clearly no. Well, you never know if these things are going to change, right? That's not going to change. 
far as I'm concerned, I think the only way that um, Silverlight can really survive is if they start like allowing you to develop in that framework and then do a published HTML5 like option. Wow. And they're in yeah, and then if you come out with HTML5 editors in Visual Studio or something that's akin to it, is it game over? Yeah, well, if Visual Studio doesn't support HTML5, is it game over for Visual Studio? Exactly. You know, the vis- you got to think the Visual Studio team has to, cons- to support HTML5. So the, you know, that's inevitable. The question is, will HTML5 actually be the promise of running on all the platforms? And that we don't know. The, th- the hardest thing about HTML, I mean, I've been a web developer for, you know, 12, 13 years, and, and it's like, you know, managing all the different assets and all the different technologies. You have your CSS, your JavaScript, your whole UI, you know, your code, your server-side code. It's hard to manage all of that stuff. And Silverlight yeah. allows one nice environment with one nice framework to work with. If they put that kind of effort into managing all these other components in an HTML5 scenario, that would be the ultimate. What's wrong with, you know, guys, what's wrong with a just well-designed and well-built ASP.NET application? That runs on everything. Yeah, but it's, the, it's trying to get that, that client. Right, that rich client that people uh, like so much. HTML5's promise is the Silverlight-like client. So, so me as someone, um, I, you know, I'm an IT pro, but I can write some code, and so I can kind of fake it. Um, and so maybe this isn't very representative of of you know good developers, but I would consider myself a bad developer. And there's a <laughs> lot of bad developers out there, just like there's a lot of bad IT pros. But to me, ASP.NET is kind of hard. You know, there's that whole post-back thing and the on-load and all that kind of stuff. Whereas Silverlight's a little more like writing a traditional um, app. And so if they could say, if they can make Silverlight just spit out an HTML5 website for me, I think my development experience would be a lot easier. Now, maybe I'm completely wrong, um, but it seems like, like Silverlight's easier to develop. And if they could make it so the plugin's not required, to me, that's a, that's a win-win. Rob Windsor thinks, at least internally, that SharePoint may be a game changer in terms of Silverlight adoption. Does that does Silverlight uh, in SharePoint, Rob, get it on an iPhone? Yeah, but the, um, yeah, what, what, he, I think what we're we're coming up we're coming up uh, against the issue here that the phone is really and the handheld device is really the platform of the future. Yeah, I think that his his avoidance of that is the internal application. Yeah. That, that that is that therein lies the real issue. Oh, internally as an internal application, I thought you meant yeah. at least when I sit and think to myself. I right. thought that's what you meant. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and it's a valid point. And we talked to Sahil Malik about this earlier right. in the in the weekend as well. That Silverlight is actually making it a little less painful to do custom development for SharePoint. Oh yeah, as in I, I think Silverlight's um, therefore, if you follow this logic, and Rob nailed it here. If you, uh, you know, if you're an internal company and you want to build line of business applications within your enterprise, Silverlight's a clear win for that. And we saw that when Silverlight 4 came out. It's like all of a sudden, all right, I can build in browser, out of the browser, in one common language. Yeah. My CRUD app decision it, is made for yeah. me. It's a clear win unless Silverlight no longer exists in a couple of versions. And well, you know, if Silverlight is being used by Microsoft's bread and butter market, yeah, I don't see Silverlight going away because WPF see. doesn't go away. Yeah, I don't see it going away yeah, either. I think that's that's impossible. WPF is locked in because it's the solution to the next generation of display on Windows, period. It replaces and, and, GDI 32. Uh, and and remember what we mean by that. going away. Nothing ever goes away. It just well, doesn't right. continue to get innovated. Right. And I think that's what you're really right. talking about. If if Right, yeah, if, that's what I mean. If HTML5 uh, is taking all the focus in Visual Studio next then in taking up all the cycles and Silverlight stops evolving. I think that's what you mean. Right. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Yeah. I mean, we still have NT4 out there, so it's never going to go away. Uh, stop uh, it. Stop it. Yeah, I think Peter... Le- I'm serious. You think I'm joking? No, no, I know you're right. <laughs> oh, Peter, <laughs> Peter Ladotti just asked me, uh, Carl, do you see a difference between Silverlight on the intranet versus on the web? And I think I just answered that question, but yeah. I kind of even like I would almost argue against that as well because if you're on the internet on your internet, you still might want to access your apps through your phone or through some other device. 
that's not that that you don't have silver light on. But you, you I know, think that's an exception, though. Yeah. The the but it is going to happen, and the and the problem is now we got get the question of is the development story for the iPhone arduous enough that it is actually a barrier to adoption well, for those internal applications. We, we figured that out. The answer is no. Well, it isn't for public applications. Yes, 200,000 apps trying to make a grab on the, the gold rush of, of iPhone apps is one thing. But enterprise developers trying to build applications for their organizations when they could be working all silver light. This is where I think the WinPhone 7 might actually have a win. That couldn't an enterprise mandate this phone because I can build in Silverlight, run in the browser, other browser, on the PC, and on a phone. Yeah. Because that story is compelling. It's just not going to make it in the consumer market because we can't get it on all the other phones. It seems like the consumer market always is what ends up in the enterprise. It has been that way recently, but it hasn't always been that way. You know, a few years ago, the market flipped over where the most powerful computer that people owned was their one at home, not their one at work. It wasn't always like that. And it may reverse up again. I'm not sure. It's, it's in an interesting place right now. Guys, I think we're out of time. It's been a fun hour, though. So we'll see you on the other side. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.